Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Zach Harold. This week, we hear from miners with black lung disease like Robert Bailey, who, after years of struggling to get benefits, finally received a double lung transplant. It gave him a chance to see his grandchildren grow. Having their birthdays and realizing that how fast time does go by. And if uh, I hadn't had this time added to my life, I would miss all of that. And we'll learn about a group of rock climbers who are trying to rename climbing routes that bear racist and sexist names. The defining moment is when I can allow my son to open a guidebook and read it. Like I want to be able to have my kid enjoy the outdoors. Those stories and more coming up in this episode of Inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Zach Carroll. Here in Appalachia, we're all too familiar with black lung disease and how it takes the breath away from our coal miners. For a time, it seemed like black lung was going away thanks to tougher mine safety regulations. Now it's seeing a resurgence. Some people say this is because there haven't been enough regulations that limit miners' exposure to silica dust. We recently learned that Bob Murray, a coal executive who has long fought against mine safety regulations, is now dying of black lung disease. But before we hear that story, we're actually going to begin today's show with the voice of nine-year-old Zion Bullock. He sat down with his mother, Rhonda Taylor Bullock, to have a tough conversation about racism. Rhonda is the co-founder of We Are, a Durham, North Carolina-based nonprofit committed to anti-racist education. She focuses on teaching children of all skin colors how to talk about racism. Rhonda and Zion recorded this conversation in their backyard. Hi, my name is Rhonda Taylor Bullock. I'm the co-founder of We Are. Hi, my name is Zion Bullock, and I'm the son of the co-founder of We Are. He's funny. (laughs) Why did you start We Are? I was thinking about you and ZZ, and um, how could I make... How could I work with other people to make this world a better place so that hopefully when you all get older, um, or even now, as you all are growing up, that, you know, for one, you're better prepared for the racism that exists in the world, for people who are going to treat you differently because of your skin color. When was the first time you noticed someone treated you unfairly based on your skin color? Um, I was five, and I was in kindergarten. And one of my classmates went around and invited everybody at the table to her birthday party except for me. You think that's fair? No. And then I asked her, I said, why didn't you invite me, you know, to your birthday party? And um, she said, well, you can't come to my birthday party because my dad said black people are not allowed in our home. And so she basically said I couldn't come to her birthday party because my skin was black. That's messed up. It is messed up. Um, And so we've talked a lot about racism in our family and through the camp. Remember when we had that incident in our neighborhood? Was that your first time? Was that your first time where you think you paid attention to being treated unfairly because of the color of your skin? Or or do you think it has it happened at other times? I feel like it was just that one time and it did make me very sad. Can you tell, can you tell us like what happened? The kid who was talking to me, he was white and he said that his mom was crazy. And I was like, why? And he said, it's because we have a black person living in our neighborhood. And my heart just fell. I was really sad. But I I remember you being upset because he said, um, my mom would freak out if she knew I was down here with you. And I was very proud of you because in that moment, you knew to ask, you were like, why would your mom freak out? Remember his mom started coming down the street. Do you remember what you tried to do? Run? You try you try to run behind me. You ran and hid behind me and I was like, Zion, what are you doing? Do you remember what you said? You said, I don't I don't want his mom to see that I'm black. That's what I thought you would say. That's what you thought. It's okay. I mean, you know, sometimes we remember things, sometimes it's hard, but you were you were young, six is young. But do you remember when I told you about George Floyd? Oh, it might have been it might have been Ahmaud Arbery. I can't remember. I started telling you the story, and I was just telling it like it was just another story. I think because I'd 
have thought so much about it. And But when I remember when I told you, you said, Mom, can we just, you put your hand up, you said, stop. Can we just pause and breathe for a second? Yeah, I definitely remember that because when you told us that happened, me and ZZ started crying. Yep. And, but we were trying to wipe off our tears. I remember telling y'all to take a pause so we would remember about him. I felt like you checked me and was like, Mama, this is sad. Like, we can't just tell the story and move on. Like, we need to, we need to pause and pay attention that somebody, somebody lost their life and that, that life mattered. Yeah, it's a little rough being a kid, especially during this time, because I always feel like something's watching me and it's about to shoot me. And I feel like I just get scared and I always feel like I got to run to somebody. And so I just feel like I'm in a little dark space, nowhere to go, and I just feel scared. Yeah, that's heavy. It was interesting to hear how you described it, especially because we're, we're talking about guns, we're talking about shooting, we're talking about violence, and how you are processing that it feels like someone is chasing you. And I can definitely, un- that's sad, I definitely understand. Uh, what do you think we should do? I think what we should do is do one more protest, but this time everybody who cares about black lives and everybody who is black should like join together and like make sure all the cops hear what they have to say. What do you hope for in the future? All the things. I hope I hope that you and Zaire and kids like you all um, get to grow up and not have race dictate your outcomes and where you all grow up where the systems that are responsible for caring for you that they are that they're not racist I hope that's what you all get to experience my hope particularly for like black families and brown families is that we get peace that we get to exist and take breaks and rest and I think my my hope for for white families is that they start to do their part that white families are having conversations like we're having to have and talking about race and how how race is impactful and what what does it mean to have white skin in this world or that's my hope my hope is that white folks do their part and to stand alongside black and brown voices uh, so that we can have a much more socially just society that's what i hope folks do we chant black lives matter because black lives matter Nine-year-old Zion Bullock and his mother Rhonda. They live in Durham, North Carolina. Their conversation was produced by WUNC's Liz Schlimmer. Rhonda says she was inspired to teach children to talk about racism, largely because she wanted to make the world a safer and more accepting place for her son. In recent months, it seems that conversations about racism are happening in almost every corner of our society. And that includes the world of rock climbing. Next, we're going to hear from a father who was inspired to make the sport of climbing more inclusive for his black son. Here in West Virginia, the New River Gorge boasts some of the best climbing anywhere. For decades, it's attracted climbers from all over the world who come here and create new climbing routes. As the first people to climb these routes, the first ascensionists in climber lingo, these pioneers have the privilege of naming the routes. Over the last few months, Climbers ask the New River Alliance of Climbers to change some route names to get rid of racist and offensive language. I went down to the gorge last month to find out more. I'm standing at the base of a gargantuan rock formation in West Virginia's New River Gorge. You can hear the water coming down the mountainside, rushing toward the river below. This rock, known as the Hole, shoots hundreds of feet overhead, curving as it goes to form an imposing-looking overhang. A man is powering his way up this craggy face, and he's moving fast, finding handholds here and footholds there. The only thing protecting him from falling on the jagged boulders below are some rope, some carabiners clipped into metal anchors that have been drilled into the rock, and his partner, who's standing on solid ground, holding one end of the rope. 
The climber works his way higher and higher, and then all of a sudden, he comes swooping down toward the ground. Climber DJ Grant drove from Pittsburgh to the New River Gorge, as he does nearly every weekend during the warm months. Earlier that morning, as I waited for him to get breakfast, DJ told me how he discovered climbing. It was actually because I was fighting depression, and I went to the gym, and I loved it since. Even now, like if I'm having a bad week or a bad day, like I go climbing and it, it helps me a lot. It's a puzzle. Like you have, you have to challenge yourself into solving a puzzle, not based on your strength, but on technique and your own ingenuity. So as you are, it's physically active, but it's also mentally stimulating. Recently, DJ has become obsessed with solving one particular puzzle, the climbing route known as Blood Raid. Like, for me, I don't like failure, and every time I get on this wall, I fail. I'm also afraid of heights, so it's me fighting the fear, me fighting the fact that I'm gonna fail. It's everything that I hate climbing embodies, and I love that. Blood Raid was established and named back in the 1980s by climber Doug Reed. That's how it works in the climbing world. Developer out, and it's yours to name. But this tradition has come under scrutiny of late. If you climb a route for the very first time, you traditionally get to name it. It is just tradition, it's not a right. And that's what we're, we're arguing about right now, is that just because you climbed it first and you decide to be juvenile and name it something racist, you don't get to say you're not racist or something like that, just change it. The argument DJ's talking about started in May. He came down to the gorge with some climbing buddies to celebrate his birthday. Yeah, uh, it was a Memorial Day weekend. A uh, buddy of mine and both of our partners, Natalie and Alexis, we were climbing at this route, this wall, and there was a route called Tigger. Yeah, it had another Tigger in the Morgan hard pipe hitting Tiggers, uh, which are both plays on the N word. And like, I was really offended by it. I was really taken. Like it. It was the first time that I realized that something like a name could ruin my entire day. Like I didn't want to go anywhere close to that wall. I didn't want to touch it. I didn't want to look at it. It was just like, it was so offensive and so hurtful. So like it just it ruined my day. It, ruined, it almost ruined my entire trip. DJ is black. And these offensive names he's referencing live in a two-volume guidebook called New River Rock, which has directions and descriptions of 3,000 climbing routes in the gorge. And it turns out nearly 100 have similarly offensive names. There are climbing routes with names like Tar Baby and Slave Fingers. There's a whole series of climbs named for the racist character Sambo, like Sambo Goes to Disneyland, and the list goes on and on and on. So here's a cool one. Cool Crocs Climbing with all Ks. Yeah. DJ says these names have upset him for years, but until recently he felt powerless to do anything about it. Then two important things changed. For one, his 10-year-old son started climbing with him. The defining moment is when I can allow my son to open a guidebook and read it and not be worried about him asking me questions. Of, what's, what's a tar baby? What's sleigh fingers? Cool Clark's climbing. Hey, Daddy, there's all Ks. Is that KKK? Like, I don't want to have those conversations. Like, I want to be able to have my kid enjoy the outdoors. And the other thing that changed for DJ? There were protesters clashing with police and stopping traffic in Minneapolis last night, this after the death of George Floyd. Four police officers have now been fired, but outrage spilled into the streets after Floyd, a black man, died in police custody on Monday night. There was video widely shared on social media showing a police officer using his knee to pin Floyd's neck to the ground for several minutes. Eventually, conversations about police brutality shifted to include the wider problem of racism in America. The world of rock climbing began its own conversations because no matter where you go from the Red River Gorge of Kentucky to Ten Sleep Canyon in Wyoming, racist route names are a problem. DJ and his partner reached out to the New River Alliance of Climbers, better known as NRAC, an advocacy group that represents climbers' interests in the gorge. They want the group to acknowledge the racism that exists in climbing culture. At first, they got no response. 
But after a few weeks, NRAC's board reached out and set up a Zoom call with DJ and other climbers of color. They wanted to discuss how to make rock climbing in the gorge more diverse. The issue of names came up pretty quickly. I think it, it could start with the root names. You know, from coming from out of town to a climbing area, looking at that guidebook, um, it's, it's damn near impossible to climb a route called the racist and then go and camp in the middle of the woods and not feel like you're going to get lynched when you go to sleep. That's Ronnie Black, a black climber in Vermont who has climbed in the gorge for years. DJ was also on the call and stressed that NRAC should facilitate getting the names changed. You guys know each other, and like I don't think that we as a marginalized community should be should have to reach out to the first ascensionist and say, hey, we don't like this. Can you please change it? We think that NRAC should have taken the the stand should have been the liaison between us and the first ascensionist and us in the community to say, hey, we think you should change this. Basically, DJ and his friends are asking the climbing organization to reach out to the people who named these routes and have them change the names, which is more complicated than it sounds because some of these routes have been around for over 30 years and their creators are scattered all over the country. And what if they don't want to change the name? In that case, NRAC might just rename it for them. Gene Kistler, NRAC board president, liked the idea. You know, I completely agree with you. When I look at climbing um, and how much has changed, when I started climbing for years, there were not even women climbing. And today it's so different, and we're not obligated to preserve any of that because really it's the rock climbing that matters. And I don't think anybody here have an issue. I mean, there's been some, there's been some issues with the name changes and preserving history and people are struggling, but I think all that's process. And the fact of the matter is changing the names is a really simple lift compared to what's next. NRAC quickly formed a Justice, Equality, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee, JEDI for short. And they started trying to figure out how many names needed to be changed. Members of the committee went through the guidebook page by page. They ended up with a list of 92 route names that ridicule some type of minority group. Black people, Asian people, LGBT folks, people living with disabilities, there are all kinds that are offensive to women. A lot of the names we can't even say on the radio. There's a deadline to get this work done, too. A new edition of the guidebook's second volume is going to press this fall. After that, it'll likely be a long time before another edition is printed. So if NRAC doesn't get the names in that volume changed quickly, they'll sit on bookshelves for years to come. Mikey Williams compiled the first comprehensive New River Gorge climbing guidebook back in 2008. He's preparing the new edition, too. He also used to be a member of the NRAC board until he resigned a few months ago, partially because he says the organization shouldn't be wading into what he sees as social justice issues. You know, as the guidebook author, it made sense to recuse myself from from dealing with the actual what are we going to name and what are we going to rename. But you know, then I look at this this list and I'm like, man, it's frustrating. Any of any of the names that had a reference to the N word, for sure, you're like, okay, that was bad. Or the cool crux climbing, all spelled with K's. You're like, come on, man. All right, how could we not have seen this? Let's get the KKK stuff out of the book. But there are other names that Mikey doesn't see as offensive, including some of the routes he personally named. So here's the, the route description for the root Aryan race. A sustained pump race up reflective white rock that's steeper than a Hitler salute. Probably not in the best taste, um, you know, but to me, I, I had no idea that that would be, I, I don't know the word for it. Offensive isn't the word for it. Um, I never thought that that would be taken as a celebration of white supremacy. You know, I'm certainly not a white supremacist. You know, I have no, I've got no love for Hitler <laughs> at all, you know. Uh, being able to use that description is such a colorful, accurate description of the route. Mikey says the way he sees it, the route name Aryan Race pokes fun at the Third Reich. It's only when the name is taken out of context that it becomes offensive. And he's not the only one that feels this way. Several climbers have pushed back on NRAC's renaming efforts because they say the original climbers weren't really trying to be racist or offensive. But DJ and other climbers advocating for name changes point out that context doesn't appear anywhere in the books. 
I don't get the context. The context isn't written in the book, so I don't get the context. So, like, why are you defending the context of it when, when for 20 years I wasn't given the context? It's only after I voiced my opinion and my concerns about it, you tell me that it's not racist because it was done in such a way. The climbers in Rackus approach so far see things DJ's way. They've agreed to change the names. Even Mikey's trying to decide what he'll rename Aryan Race. Now I realize that while I was laughing, not everybody was laughing, you know? For his part, DJ says he's pleased with the progress that NRAC has made with the name changes so far. But the damage is already done. Some routes are just going to bring up bad memories, even once they're called something else. A lot of these routes I will never get back on because I know the backstory of it. So, like any of the ticket routes, I will... I refuse to climb ever because of the backstory on it. But I would love for someone, I would love for my child to not know the name of it and get on it and enjoy it. I'd love for someone from out of town to come on with the new guidebook, with the new name and get on the climb and say, this is an amazing route. I really, I really admire the first reception for putting this up, for bolting it, for making it what it is. But for me, I'm still hurt by it. I'm still hurt by the fact that of what it was. I'm still offended by it but I hope the next person who gets on it is not offended by it. That's all I'm hoping for too, like the next person can enjoy it more than I can ever enjoy it. We're calling today's show Black Lives and Black Lungs. Now, if you don't think the plight of black Americans and us hillbillies have much in common, well, you probably need to see the recent viral video from singer-songwriter Tyler Childers. In the midst of our own daily struggles, it's often hard to share an understanding for what another person might be going through. With that in mind, at the risk of mistakenly analogizing two groups of people, I would ask my white rural listeners to think on this. I don't mean to imply that many of you aren't already doing good self-examination on this issue, but I have heard from many who have not. What if we were to constantly open up our daily paper and see a headline like, East Kentucky man shot seven times on fishing trip, and read on to find the man was shot while fishing with his son by a game warden who saw him rummaging through his tackle box for his license and thought he was reaching for a knife. What if we read a story that began North Carolina man rushing home from work to take his elderly mother to the ER run stop sign and is pulled over and beaten by police when they see a gun rack in the truck? Or a headline like Ashland Community and Technical College nursing student shot in her sleep. How would we react to that? What form of upheaval would that create? I venture to say if we were met with this type of daily attack on our own people, we would take action in a way that hasn't been seen since the Battle of Blair Mountain in West Virginia. And if we wouldn't stand for it, why would we expect another group of Americans to stand for it? Why would we stand silent while it happened? Or worse, get in the way of it being rectified? We're going to take a break, but before we go, here's the title track from Tyler's most recent album. It's called Long Violent History. It's the worst that it's been since the last time it happened. It's happening again right in front of our eyes. There's updated footage, wild speculation, tall tales and hearsay and absolute lies. Being passed off as factual, when actually the actual cause is there. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Back in the 1960s, 
Miners organized a movement to end black lung. They convinced Congress to pass new laws that were supposed to make the chronic disease a thing of the past. But black lung has come roaring back, and it may be worse than ever. Two years ago, the Department of Labor reported nearly 5,000 coal miners have been diagnosed with black lung disease since 1970. Almost half of those cases have been in the last 20 years. The numbers are staggering. Many of these men and women applied for medical benefits, but those can take years to get approved. Often, coal companies and insurance agents fight those cases, keeping miners from the medical treatments they desperately need. Robert Bailey was one of those who saw firsthand how long and cumbersome this process was. He died last year, but five weeks before he passed away, he spoke with Inside Appalachia's Jessica Lilly. He told her he was concerned there aren't enough protections for miners. I know a lot of, does a lot of things for the money, and they're offered a lot of money to uh, meet certain goals. But you can meet a goal today that will take you out of this world tomorrow. Eventually, Bailey was approved for medical benefits, and he had a double lung transplant. It added a few years to his life, which he said he was grateful to have because it allowed him to spend more time with his family. Having their birthdays and realizing that how fast time does go by, that each one of them is getting older and and their looks are changing and they're just growing up. And next thing you know, they're going to be grown like I am. And if uh, I hadn't had this time added to my life, I would miss all of that. Robert Bailey was a coal miner for 36 years. When he died last year, he was 65 years old. In the years leading up to his death, Robert Bailey was a champion for coal miners. He wanted Congress to make it easier for miners to receive black lung benefits. In the end, Bailey's lung transplant was approved just after the coal company he worked for, Patriot Coal, declared bankruptcy. So the money for his transplant came from the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund, which covers black lung medical benefits for former employees of bankrupt coal companies. It's funded by taxes on coal companies. Coal companies have been asking Congress to reduce those taxes and roll back a myriad of Obama-era regulations they argue make mining more expensive. One of the most outspoken coal company executives is Bob Murray. His coal company, Murray Energy, filed for bankruptcy last fall. Ironically, Murray himself has now filed for black lung benefits. At the time this show was recorded, Murray's health was reported to be in decline, and it's not clear how long he has to live. I'm now joined by Brittany Patterson and Dave Mistich, the two reporters with West Virginia Public Broadcasting who broke the story about Murray's claim earlier this month. Dave and Brittany, thank you so much for joining us on Inside Appalachia to talk about this story. First thing I'd like to know is just how did you come across this? How did you find out that Bob Murray had applied for black lung benefits? You know, the the best way to put it is that we got a tip from a source. That person, of course, is going to remain anonymous, but it was a person that was familiar with it. They were able to have some access to documents associated with his claim. You know, when someone files a claim for black lung benefits, there's a whole host of people that have access to it. And a whole lot of people um, become privy to this kind of information. So in the course of reporting this story, you ended up on the phone with Mr. Murray. How, how did that come about? Well, you know, as part of this claim, there was some contact information and it included a home phone number and a cell phone number. Um, The first time I called, his wife answered the phone. I identified myself as a reporter. She stepped away for a moment and said that he was uh, with a hospice worker at that time, which, you know, to be completely honest, it definitely made my heart sink quite a bit. She, She came back on the phone. She asked for me to call back in 10 minutes. Of course, I called him back roughly about that time later. And, you know, he was the one that answered the phone. I identified myself as a reporter that was working on a story, asked if I could record the conversation. Uh, He never consented to that, so I turned off the recorder. But I I will say that, you know, he talked to me for about the next 10 minutes. Folks can go listen to the full story on our website, wvpublic.org. But can you summarize just a little bit the conversation you guys had? He was somewhat confrontational about it. He confirmed that he did have black lung. Um, He said that he was entitled to those benefits. 
he kept asking me why I was planning to do a story on this, to whether or not I or anyone in the news media had ever reported on a person making a claim for black lung benefits. Um, and of course, you know, as we mentioned that he threatened to sue if anything was published that said that at any point over the course of his career that he had fought regulations that were put in place to, to keep minors safe. Brittany, you cover the energy industry. And as we've mentioned, Bob Murray is a pretty prominent person in that world. Can you just describe a little bit of his legacy? You know, Murray has been extremely vocal and had a really unprecedented amount of access to this current administration when it comes to trying to get regulations changed that would benefit the coal industry. This is a man who donated $300,000 to Trump's inaugural campaign. This is a man who submitted a 16-point wish list, basically, to the administration, and the administration proceeded to carry a lot of those out. So he's definitely a really outspoken proponent of trying to save the coal industry. And as part of that effort to save the coal industry, some of those requests he made were to reduce the number of regulations, right? Yes, absolutely. Mr. Murray is no fan, um, especially of the climate regulations that were put in place under the Obama administration. A lot of those took aim at coal-fired power plants and reducing carbon emissions. One of the reasons that we sort of decided that this was a story and taking into consideration, you know, Mr. Murray's question of, you know, do you write about anyone with black lung? And no, not normally we don't. Um, but this is a man who put his name and his company's name literally at the top of a lawsuit in 2014 when the Obama administration went to update the dust control rules that sort of help prevent coal dust in mines. And coal dust is one of the things that causes black lung disease. And he was top of that lawsuit. Does he see any, I don't know, irony in the fact that he opposed these dust regulations and now he's suffering from a disease that's caused by the inhalation of coal dust? Did he reflect at all on his role in, in these things? You know, he argues that the reason that he fought some of these regulations uh, under the Obama administration was that it was uh, unsustainable for these companies to stay in business uh, if those regulations were put in place. All of that aside, I think if there is an ironic thing about this is that just a year ago, Mr. Murray told NPR on tape that he had a lung condition, but it was not caused by his work in the mines. But yet here we are. Nine, 10 months later, he files this claim for benefits, and he is saying that it is from his time in the mine. And I think the context here, the bigger picture is really important. Here in Appalachia, like we are seeing a huge surge in the most severe form of black lung. This is the disease that we thought was basically eradicated in the 1990s, and we're seeing younger and younger miners afflicted with this. You know, as we said, this industry is really struggling and it has been for at least the past decade. And at the same time, right, the coal barons and the, the coal companies, they want to keep it alive by whatever means possible. Plenty of coal miners want to keep their jobs as well. There's a cost to pay for that. And a lot of it is miners, including Murray, who have black lung disease. Just to bring our, our short conversation here to a close, is there anything you're hoping that folks who hear your story will take away from them in regards to black lung disease and the resurgence that it's seeing? Sure. The most impactful thing that has come from this story, and, and it was a tough one, like this is not a fun story to do, but I think it's been the reaction that we have gotten from coal miners and their families who have really expressed a lot of their own pain from having to go through this benefits process and having black lung. And it's a really painful and deadly disease. And as we mentioned, it's affecting more and more minors and younger minors. And at the same time, you know, the federal process in place in order to get these black lung benefits can take years. You know, it's not unheard of that minors will pass away before they they know the status of whether or not they're going to get these benefits. All around, it's a really heartbreaking process. Well, Dave Mistich, Brittany Patterson, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Good reporting, guys. You're welcome. Thank you. As I mentioned earlier, black lung was once thought to be nearly eradicated. 
but it's made a resurgence in the past two decades. For the 17 miners we'll hear in this next story, Black Lung has drastically changed their lives, their communities, and their families. They told their stories to NPR's Howard Burkus and Ohio Valley Resource reporter Benny Beckner. We'll start in Leatherwood, Kentucky, which is where Howard met miner Greg Kelly. I'm Greg Kelly. I'm in uh, Leatherwood, Kentucky. Well, I dropped out of high school. Uh, I was working in a grocery store, and I left the grocery store and went to coal mine. I felt like coal mine was my my way of, of living. It was something that was in our blood that we loved to do. Uh, my name is Charles Shortridge, and I live in Meadowview, Virginia, and I've worked 28 years in the coal industry. We love working in the coal mines. It's, that's all we knew was hard work, and that's how we provided for our families. I love coal mining. If I was able today, I'd, I'd be working in the mines. My name is Paul Kinder, and I live in a little town called Honeaker, Virginia. My full career was underground, and I run a roof bolter some and a continuous miner, and I was a foreman, and, uh, you know, I just loved it. I remember when I was a little boy, I'd go, my daddy sometimes would take me to, to the mines where he worked at. And, man, I love the smell of that. It's just a different smell. I like to go smell one today. It was a good job, and uh, couldn't wait to get to work. Uh, my name is John Gibson. I'm from Appalachia, Virginia, and I'm 56. Harold Dotson, live in Phelps, Kentucky. My name is Jackie Yates. Uh, my name is Noah K. Counts. I live in Clintwood, Virginia. My name is Rodney Sexton. Coal mines was good to me, but God's been even better. That's the only way I can look at it, you know. The one thing I didn't want was back long, but I got it anyway. <laughs> What's it like now with the disease for you? Oh, it's terrible. Bill Cantor, I'm from... Uh, Pensonport, Kentucky. I mean, it's unexplainable. It's just, I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> it's a horrible-looking thing. You've got nigels that's on your lungs. It's caused from coal dust, rock dust. You know, it's just like turns your lungs to concrete. You just stop breathing, and you just wake up, <gasps> and there you are, you're awake. I'm Jack Horn, and I'm from Kemper, Kentucky. The only thing I could liken it to is like if somebody ever holds you in underwater till you thought you were going to drown, and when you come up, you're, you're gasping for air, and that's about what it's like, you know, when you have a lung attack. And I hate it so bad I can't understand it at times, but it's affected my whole being. Tell me your name and uh, where you're from. Uh, Edward Fuller from Steel, Kentucky. Looking back on your mining career, can you think about what it was that happened that might have caused your black lung? Yeah, the coal dust, the dust. I was in the dust all the time. James L. Muncie, M-U-N-C-Y. I come out of there, he's white as a sheet of ghost. Well, I come out of there and the only thing you see me was mice. You just watch it fall off like ash. It's thick. My name's Roy Mullins, Roy Edward Mullins from Clintwood, Virginia. You can smell it. You can taste it. And when you come outside, you get a drink of water or Coke or whatever, you know, and you hark it up and spit it up, you're spitting up gooks of coal dust, and that is embedded into your system. That's just the way it is, really, I think. My name's uh, James Hayes, and I'm from Pike County at Pinson Fort, Kentucky. You know, I mean, it's a dusty job. It's just dusty in the coal mines, regardless. And if you stay long enough, you're more likely going to get black lung. I blame the whole mining industry, you know, the companies and all. I'm Jimmy Wampler. I work for little mines. I work big mines. You got people out there that runs mines that all they want is coal. They don't care about violations. They don't care about nothing else. They just want coal. Coal. Get the coal. Get the coal. They don't care if you live or die, the truth of it. The name of the game was Runco. <laughs> My name's Danny Thornsbury, and I was a boater man, scoop man, drill man, done it all. And uh, then I ended up being a foreman. There was just a lot of laws that was couldn't really do in, uh, in mine coal profitably. Roy Sparks, I'm from uh, Rock House, Kentucky. Uh, uh, the companies has got so, they're so slick, I mean, you know. Fudging everything. It's a hide-and-seek for real. They try try to 
act like they're complying by the laws. Even the inspectors know they're not. And you had to do what they said. If you didn't, here's your hide. You kept your mouth shut. If you didn't, they'd fire you. So I just kept my mouth shut and went on. But I paid for it in the long run. Sure have, and I'm sure every other miner has too. Just almost every guy that I know in our church was a coal miner. My pastor, he had brake long. Bill has brake long. Mike has brake long. My father-in-law. I got an older brother's got brake long. My brothers, my uh, uncles. Uh, my dad's got brake long. Just uh, the whole generation, you know, everybody around me, the whole neighborhood. And I think Papa does, and me. Since 2011, I have lost uh, seven friends. And knowing that that's coming to you, it's pretty hard to take. I tried to talk my son out of it. I tried to get him to go to school. You know, when he got out of high school, I said, now look, you're, uh, you're going to go to school or you're going to get you a job. And uh, he said, no, I won't stay here. And he said, I'm going to go into work in the mines. And so he did. I said, you'll be 30 years old with black lung. You don't want this. No, Dad, I want to work in the mines. I want to be like you. And guess where he's at? He's working in the mines. The day you pick that dinner bucket up and go in the mines, that's the day you sign your death warrant. Now, it's plain simple. I go out and I just sit down and have a good cry. You know, that's all you do. Because this black lung is a death sentence. But, you know, that's, we just got to take it one day at a time and hope for the best. Hope, pray, that the good Lord just bless us to have another day. Those were the voices of 17 former coal miners in Appalachia. All of them have advanced black lung disease. That piece was produced by NPR's Kat Shucknick from interviews collected by Howard Burkus and the Ohio Valley Resources' Benny Beckner. That story originally aired on All Things Considered in January 2019. Coal miners like Danny Smith and Greg Kelly are even more vulnerable now during the pandemic. COVID-19 compromises the respiratory systems of even the healthiest people, but for miners with black lung disease, it could easily be a death sentence. Our Southern Coalfields reporter, Caitlin Tan, brings us this story. Jerry Coleman worked as a coal miner for 37 years, mostly underground near Cabin Creek, West Virginia, a third-generation miner. But at 68 years old, he has complicated black lung disease, meaning his lungs are permanently and irreversibly scarred by coal dust. Black lung, it doesn't get better. It gets worse. Black lung is, in a way, a death sentence. The lungs gradually deteriorate until the person can no longer breathe. And in the middle of a pandemic, it's only more complicated, Coleman says. He's also the president for the Kanawha County Black Lung Association. you got to wear a mask. And with your breathing problems and stuff, it's just hard to walk around and breathe through the mask. It's like sucking in hot air, but I don't have no choice. You know, with the condition of my lungs and stuff, I can't take a chance. COVID-19 is classified as a respiratory virus. It can affect and even be deadly to the healthiest of people. But the most vulnerable are those with high-risk conditions, such as lung disease and old age, which represent much of West Virginia's former coal miner population. Each different lung disease kind of takes away some of your lung function. That's Carl Wernz, an occupational medical specialist who gives black lung exams, a crucial step to apply for federal black lung benefits. So if you have black lung, that's going to take away some lung function. So that person, if they get COVID, it bothers their lungs. They're going to run out of usable lung much faster than somebody who starts out with healthy lungs. Since the pandemic began, Wernz says black lung exams were put on hold at the clinic he works at in Cabin Creek. Exams slowly resumed in July, but at half capacity. Typically, he sees six to eight patients a day. But with new COVID protocols, Wernz says he now sees three to four. 
creating a backlog of patients waiting for their black lung exam. The longer you wait to do the testing and to show that they really have the disease, the longer it is until they can get benefit, including you know, potentially medical care if they don't have some other way to pay for their breathing care. Federal black lung benefits include monthly payments and medical coverage for lung treatment. Treatment that's expensive, Jerry Coleman says. Remember, he's the former coal miner with black lung. The fight for benefits can be long even without a pandemic. Coleman says he fought for seven years to receive his benefits. Until you get awarded anything that pertains to your breathing, you have to pay for everything. And you're, you're not going to you know, spend exactly what you have to spend because you don't have the money to waste. And it's shame to say, but that's, that's the way it is. And with COVID severely limiting the number of patients who can come in for their black lung exams, the wait to get benefits keeps growing for some minors. Mickey Petrie is 63 years old, and he worked in the coal mines much of his life. And although he's been diagnosed with black lung, he's been fighting for his federal benefits for three years. And now with a pandemic that has politicians scrambling, Petrie says everything is on hold. But, you know, the entire focus is on a battle going on up in, you know, D.C. Very little attention being paid to anything else. In fact, the coal excise tax, which is the primary money for the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund, is set to expire at the end of this year, meaning funds for black lung benefits could dry up quickly. And this issue is a priority for black lung associations, says Coleman. He and other members from local associations went to D.C. last year and helped secure the funding through 2020. But with COVID, Coleman says it's harder for the associations to hold meetings and to advocate for the renewal of the legislation. Because our voice is what's got to be heard. You know, if we don't speak out, it's not going to be, it's going to be forgotten. In the meantime, things are a lot less social for those with black lung disease. Coleman says he spent most of his spring and summer at home trying to social distance. And Petri says not being able to go to the monthly Black Lung Association meetings takes a toll mentally. Many of the members are his neighbors, friends, or former co-workers. There's a therapeutic aspect. But now, even going to the store is a risk, Petri says. I don't have a, I don't have a lot of tolerance for people now. And there's so many people that think that wearing a mask is a joke. People have the right to their opinion, but we can't afford to to say that it's not real. You know, and when they infringe upon our protection, you know, I get really upset. Petri says he doesn't know what the future holds for him as someone with black lung disease during a pandemic. But he's making do with what he has. Mowing the lawn, grilling meat on his back porch, and occasionally putting on a mask and getting a hot chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Caitlin Tan. For the last several years of his life, my papa Bobby Adkins fought for every breath he took. He was a retired coal miner and he had black lung. I watched as the disease wore him down. I remember when I was little, he couldn't walk from one end of our yard to the other without getting winded. By the end of his life, he couldn't make it from his recliner to the kitchen table. He died in 2011 at the age of 78. Now that's a longer life than his doctors expected. But aside from his black lung disease, Papa Bob was a pretty healthy guy. And I have little doubt that had he not been forced to work in unsafe conditions all those years, he'd still be with us today. I am a little glad he didn't have to suffer through this pandemic, though, and have to worry like Jerry Coleman does. And I'm glad he didn't have to worry about losing his black lung benefits, which paid for hundreds of thousands of dollars of medical care throughout his final years. And yet, there is so much that I'd like to talk to him about. As someone who knew what it was like to fight to breathe, I wonder what Papa would have to say about the deaths of men like Christopher Lowe and Eric Garner. Elijah McClain and George Floyd, men who had many years left to live, but were suffocated to death while in police custody. 
And as a lifelong Grand Ole Opry fan, I bet he really would have dug Tyler Childers. Till next time, thanks for joining me as we journey throughout Appalachia. We had help producing Inside Appalachia this week from Appalachia Health News, a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Marshall Health and Charleston Area Medical Center, and West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Southern Coalfields Reporting Project, which is supported by a grant from the National Coal Heritage Area Authority. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Tyler Childers and the Stony Mountain Bluegrass Band. Roxy Todd is our producer. Eric Douglas is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby edited our show this week. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at NAppalachia. You can find me on Twitter at Zach Harold. That's Zach with CK and Harold with an A and an O. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. My agent dad before me, my brother's all in line. When I turned 17, I went down in the mine. A battery lamp upon my head, still toes upon my feet. Dinner bucket in my hand with bread and potted me. My lungs are filling every day with dust they call black death. You think of it, don't say you don't each time you take a breath. You know you have to stay down there, there's nothing else to do. When you have no life above the ground, what's a miner's son to do? But living in West Virginia, you only got one goal. Burrow underneath the ground and dig the old black hole.